I was unhappy. I didn't want to be there. I felt like I was wasting my time and my energy. Like I was sitting in classrooms learning about life when I actually wanted to be living life. And I told her that summer, I want to take a year off. And she said, I don't know what that means. We don't do that in this family. That was her response. We go to college and we graduate. And I said, okay, well, okay. So then I went back and it wasn't until I hit rock bottom that sophomore year of college when I realized that I didn't care what quote unquote we did in my family. I didn't care what the family culture was anymore. It wasn't worth the pain. And that's when I kind of had my come to Jesus revelation <laughs> that um, laying on the floor in my apartment, I couldn't even, I was immobilized. I literally couldn't get up off the floor when people came and knocked to my friends came over to visit. And I knew in that moment that whatever it took, I had to do something different. I couldn't, I would, I was unable emotionally, mentally, physically, energetically to just muscle through in order to make other people happy. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast, conversations with the artists and makers who use creativity to innovate, disrupt, and elevate. Laren Alta is a soul guide, shadow diver, and spiritual teacher, which may make you want to stop listening before the interview has begun, because those words have a tendency to get bandied about and end up being totally drained of their meaning. But Laren is the real deal. You can hear it in her voice and you can feel it in her message. Laren has been to the bottom. She's suffered through depression and long-lasting childhood trauma. She's undergone brain surgery, witnessed the tragic death of many dear friends and family members, and she's had to reinvent her business from the ground up, virtual brick by virtual brick. Yet, through her own grit, bravery, and steadfastness, she has healed herself and in so doing, created the space for thousands of other women to heal and find their freedom. Here, Laren talks about the power of true healing and how one begins down that tricky and at times treacherous path, making your way back from the depths of despair, how to start and restart a business, and how to trust yourself even if you're the only one. May you enjoy this conversation and may it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Hello, Laren. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So to begin with, the way I start is how creativity or how where you are today, how signs of that showed up for you as a child, as a young girl. Mm, I, you know, I love that question because I don't ever really think of creativity as being separate or something outside of, you know, I have my normal, quote unquote, normal life over here and then I do creativity on the side. Creativity has always been woven into my life. I was raised by a very creative woman and she lived that way. I think about some of the first times when I started to think about creativity or experience creativity would be um, when she would make my lunch for me and my sister and she would have napkins and would put like jokes on them that she would hand write on one side she would have a question and the other side she would have like a riddle or have a question um, on the other side the answer and that was like in our daily lunches or she would design ribbons 
and would put our names and would paint on them our names and would paint designs to coordinate with our outfits. And my mom had a full-time job. She was a career woman, but she would find ways to weave creativity and her art and her self-expression into the ways that she communicated her love for us and her art for us all the time. So now she makes quilts, she's made dolls, she's makes jewelry. She has phases of creativity that she goes through. And so for me, it was always just a part of living and, and my first real creative tool or my first creative art that I kind of owned were words. So I've been reading since I was two and a half. I'm a fourth generation uh, college educated person. So words, books, reading have always been really important to me. But I started writing stories very young. And my mom tells the story that I would be sitting at a computer, um, we got com- I got a computer in middle school, so very young, and I would come in inside from playing, sit down, type out a little story, and then run back outside to play, and then come back outside and type out a little bit more of a story and come back outside to play. So I always had this sense of integration between living life and creating more life in different ways through my words. I love this image of you playing and then dashing inside <laughs> to write a story like would you would you be playing and get an idea for a story and just feel like I gotta get in there I gotta write this down how how did that happen will you disrupt the play to go write I think it was really just being present with the flow so maybe when the play had waned a little bit I would say okay now it's time to go back and finish my story and I would just go go back and forth but I wouldn't interrupt really either and so when the story had kind of run its natural course then I would go back outside and play but because I was a child I didn't really I wasn't doing either with an end goal I wasn't doing either with hopes of publishing or hopes of winning a game you know I was just being present equally in both experiences at the same time. And is writing something that you did in junior high and high school as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, some people sing, some people dance. I'm tone deaf, so that definitely wasn't what I did. I focused really on developing my craft as a writer, even in after-school programs, summer programs. I, I wanted to write and develop my voice. And so everything that I would do kind of outside on my own volition was writing focus for the most part. And I ended up writing and publishing my first book my senior year of high school. This is interesting because then the next piece is you getting ready to go to college. And what you Mm -hmm. wanted to do was travel. But that's not what happened. So what happened? No. As I mentioned, I'm fourth generation college educated. So my great grandfather was born two years after enslavement ended and had two undergraduate degrees and two master's degrees. My great grandmother, his wife, had undergraduate and graduate degrees. My grandparents both also had undergraduate and graduate degrees. My parents both had undergraduate and graduate degrees and were all educators. So I was just kind of caught up in the momentum of going, when you go to high school, then you go to college, you graduate and you go and make a a living. And I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to travel the world. My family is also travelers, but education trumps everything. Education is the way that my family got out of a lot, the South, the way they got out of um, potential poverty there, you know, so it was very treasured. And I did not want to do that. I wanted to go explore on my own. I wanted to chart my own course. And the first time when I was graduating from high school, I just kind of got caught up in the momentum of going from high school to college and, and 
forgot that I wanted to travel. So I didn't pay too much attention to it. Didn't you but, tell your mother, though, right before college that you wanted to travel instead of going to college? I told her that after my first year of college. Oh, when I first year. Okay. Yeah, when I was miserable. <laughs> I was unhappy. I didn't want to be there. I felt like I was wasting my time and my energy. Like I was sitting in classrooms learning about life when I actually wanted to be living life. And I told her that summer, I want to take a year off. And she said, I don't know what that means. We don't do that in this family. That was her response. We go to college and we graduate. And I said, okay, well, okay. So then I went back. And it wasn't until I hit rock bottom that sophomore year of college when I realized that I didn't care what quote unquote we did in my family. I didn't care what the family culture was anymore. It wasn't worth the pain. And that's when I kind of had my come to Jesus revelation <laughs> that um, laying on the floor in my apartment, I couldn't even, I was immobilized. I literally couldn't get up off the floor when people came and knocked to my friends came over to visit. And I knew in that moment that whatever it took, I had to do something different. I couldn't, I would, I was unable emotionally, mentally, physically, energetically to just muscle through in order to make other people happy. I, I just couldn't do it. So you're, you're in college and mm -hmm. you're lying on the floor, like not able to greet your friends when they knock on the door. Are you able to get up and go to class or you just completely check out of, of life at that time? Um, I, it, I could go to class sometimes, but I was very um, immobilized. So in the sense that my boyfriend at the time would come, we did not live together. He would, and we didn't even live close near each other. He would come and pick me up from my apartment in his car, drive me to class, pick me up from class, take me home, drive me, pick me up from my apartment, drive me to work. Like I was, I had hit, um, I was barely functional. And this was second semester of sophomore year. So it was, it was just the time when, when it was just like, let's just get through this learn and then see what, what, what needs to be done. And then that summer is when I told my mother I wasn't going back. And it was really the summer that changed it changed everything. And when you told your mom the second time, from a place mm -hmm. of this has to happen, were you mm -hmm. scared before this conversation or you just knew this is what needs to happen? Oh, no, I was not scared. I was crystal clear because at that point I had chosen myself and I wasn't willing to let anything else stand in the way. So as I mentioned, I've been working since I was 14. I was working that summer. I was working actually three jobs that summer because I knew I needed to do what I needed to do. So I just told her and she was of course not happy, but she had witnessed how depressed I was. And that summer, three of my friends had died back to back to back. And so it was just uh, a tipping point for me where she was just not gonna push that anymore. Okay, so you're about to travel. I'm just gonna pause right there for one minute because that's, that's pretty massive. Not only did you just go through this period of time where you're really depressed, and I know my husband went through a period of time being very depressed, could not get off the couch. Same thing. He could go to work. He could function at work. But when he wasn't working, he could barely move. And yes, exactly. Yeah. So it, that's in and of itself, like that is huge. And then you have three friends die one after mm -hmm. another. Was there something else that came out of that for you apart from, okay, I'm going to go travel. I mean, what, what impact did that have? The, the deaths in particular, or the, 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 the deaths, deaths followed the... by the following the depression. Was there anything mm -hmm. in particular? 
Oh, yeah. And that's why I say that's the summer that changed everything because it really forced me. I, and again, I was 19 now at the, at the time. And so I, my understanding of mortality was just developing. This was the first kind of um, series of people who had died in my life. And it lasted for five years. So between 19 and 24, I had someone in my life die every three to nine months. Wow. Yeah, it was it was um, devastating. So so that beginning of that process followed by depression forced me to say, I have to do what works for me. I have to do what makes me happy because two of those three first people who died were my age. They were 19 years old and none of us had high risk lifestyle. So one of them died in a car accident. One of them died from being drowned, even though he could swim. And the third one died after surgery. So I just that and then followed by this sense of depression from not having said yes to myself and saying yes to someone else, I just said, hell or high water, whatever it takes, I've got to figure this out. Because, um, because, because I don't know, I might die tomorrow. And that sense of which gave me a lot of anxiety, even when I came back to school, it gave me a lot of anxiety, because, you know, people who I knew, were who were my peers had just died. But I just decided to do it, to do it anyway, it took me years to make peace with that. But the biggest lesson was impermanence, making peace with impermanence. But it took a lot of years and a lot of hard lessons to really accept that nothing and no one is permanent. Yes. So you go to travel and you travel, Laren, to something like 23 countries over the course of a year. Is that correct? No, 23 countries total. So total. that year I okay. traveled to four countries. Okay. Okay. So you travel to four and then over the years travel to 23. What are you looking for in traveling or what is compelling you to to keep traveling and and keep going from place to place well I'm a curious person naturally I love people and I love the world for me traveling the world reminds me that I'm a global citizen that even if my country of origin doesn't treat people who look like me the way that I think human beings should be treated, that there's a whole planet that treats people differently and loves and celebrates and sees people differently. And it's important for me to be reminded of that and to experience it in a deep, intimate, personal way so that I can be part of it, not only when I'm there, but that I can also bring that back and share that with people that I know here. The depression then that you felt that sophomore year when you went to travel and you see, you meet people from all these other places and in this first year, four, four different countries, and you see yourself as this global citizen, what does that do to the depression when you come back from traveling? Yeah, uh, great question. So the, the global citizenship was kind of what I discovered. I didn't know that I wasn't going for that, right? I was just going because I wanted to go. And Nepal was the the country that was calling me. So I went to Nepal, but then I was like, well, I might as well go to India while I'm here. And I'm going to go to France and I'm going to go to Thailand. So more so than the global citizenship that I experienced was doing what I wanted to do. That That sense of liberation is what really ignited me to on my path. You know, and it wasn't easy. I was 19 years old traveling around the world by myself 
And it wasn't easy. There were countries I didn't speak the language where I didn't look like anybody. Um, I survived an avalanche in Nepal. I was trekking in the Himalayas for three weeks. I was all over India by myself. But what that forced me to do was trust myself in a way that I couldn't ever learn how to do on the home turf. When I had to learn how to connect with people, when I had to learn how to trust my intuition, when I had to learn how to communicate, when there was no internet and there was, when I was, you know, Lonely Planet was my internet, the book. (laughs) And, you know, when I, so it's like, I had to learn how to really trust myself and that be, I was never um, super obedient. You know, I never was like just doing exactly what my family wanted me to do, but this was like, it forced me to, to get down to the nuts and bolts of my truth in a, in sometimes in a life or death situation. And that is what gave me the tools to come back to school and say, okay, I'm, this is what I'm going to major in. This is the classes I'm going to take. This is the life I'm going to create. And I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure this out. So what, what did you major in and what was the life that you, you said, this is what I'm going to create? What did that life look like? I majored in comparative women's studies, um, which again, my family was not super thrilled about because there's no, it, there's no career attached to that. Uh, but I knew that that's the only thing I really wanted to study was women's studies. And, and it was so good for me. And I loved, loved it. And um, I started Sister Fire at, at my college when I came back from that first trip. And I started as an all women open mic. And it was when I really stepped into my medicine, stepped into my healing work of holding transformational healing spaces for women. And I figured, even though the way it came about was not what I set out to create, which is often life, right? Like we're often surprised by what happens. Um, But by the time I was ready to graduate, I knew that this was what I was born to do to hold sacred space and to be that container for transformation. And so that's not to say I did that immediately full time after college. I definitely worked for a lot of different companies and nonprofits and for profits and all that as I figured out how to create a business. But I knew that that's what I needed to do and that I any other any doing anything else with my life or career would leave me in that sense of depression that I'd experienced before. So take a minute to paint a picture for me of when you, so you started Sister Fire in college, but you, uh, you envision this life that you want to create. What, mm-hmm. what did that look like? Mm. At that point, it looked like traveling with people to facilitate, traveling to facilitate workshops, being like a mobile healing workshop, mobile healing center where I could bring workshops, retreats, and be on, be anywhere in the world. And that's essentially what I do today. So you just, you saw yourself at that point as a healer. Yes. Oh yeah. Because that's the work, that's the work that Sister Fire was. I mean, that's the, from the first Sister Fire gathering, that's exactly what it was. Where, where did that come from of that knowing like, this is it, I'm a healer? While people were getting healed. <laughs> so it was that, it was the, it was seeing the work that you were doing reflected, having that reflected back to you. Yeah, immediately. And that people, I did it once a month and people kept coming and people said to me, this is what I came to college for. This is what I thought college was going to be like. I would have dropped out of college by now. I would have taken my life if I hadn't come to Sister Fire. So I kept doing it. And the community that held me, the community that created that sanctuary, that safe space, are still my sisters today. And and it has rippled out. 
it has rippled. They continue to do their medicine work. I got a message yesterday from someone who was part of that community saying that she, the reason, part of the reason now that she's a PhD teaching what she teaches, doing what she's doing and running her own monthly salons is because of her time at Sister Fire. Did you see yourself as a leader at that point? Um, no, I, I mean, I think by default, just because I was leading something, but I it, leading was not my my game plan at all. I was just I wanted to create a space where women could come and be with each other and heal. And so leadership came out of that. But it, I didn't start out to lead anything. I just wanted a safe space for women to be able to do the work. You came from a very loving home, very strong woman who was running your mom and you had a lot of positive experiences and this message of healing mm -hmm. was fundamental to your vision yes. for your life. Yes. Why? Why is that? I, you know, it's so important because we, we are all, all hold multiplicities. So it's so true. I grew up knowing I was loved, knowing I was valued, knowing I was important. Um, and I also grew up with a lot of trauma. I grew up with in a household with someone who was very violent and abusive. And I didn't have the language. I didn't have a safe space. I didn't have the validation that what I was experiencing was not okay. And so I started developing kind of the skills of deep listening, the skills of holding space, the skills of taking care of myself very young, because I, at that point, I didn't have boundaries. So I was also taking care of everybody else. I was over giving, over caretaking, and I had to learn how to reel that back and to do it in a really important way, in a way that people who needed it could receive it, but not for everybody. So I started out learning I had to heal my own trauma first. Um, and not to say that there's an end goal. I don't ever want to communicated there's like someone is healed right but I had to learn how to heal my own wounds and be my own healer so that I could hold a container for other people because you also there's a lot of people in doing healing work who haven't healed their own trauma and are just kind of repeating it in other ways with different people and so my focus on being a healer started because I had my own trauma and my own healing that I had to address since no one had addressed it or or taught me how to address it so I don't want to go deep into this, but if you can just say very briefly, when you talk about this trauma, when you talk about what you went through as a child, can you s speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky situation because although I speak very comfortably and publicly about it, my family doesn't. And so I want to respect their privacy. Mm -hmm. um, so I will say, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I would say that there was someone in my family who has mental illness that went unchecked until adulthood. And their mental illness was very impactful on me as a child. They were also a child, and so there was a lot of complicated misappropriation of caretaking that, that ended up happening. Um, you know, it is complicated, and I do have conversations with my mother in particular about it because I'm a very private person, but, but I know that my story is medicine for people and they need to know that they're not alone and that it's okay to do the healing work that's needed to heal. Because when you silence things, when you suppress them, when you pretend that they didn't happen, you can't heal them. They need light, they need air, they need to be released. Um, so it, it is, it's important, but it is a tricky, a tricky situation when, when it's my story involves other people. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I totally respect that. 
and and I know that in your healing work, like you, so you healed what you needed to heal. And, and of course we live, life is a whole, life is a healing process. Like, right. <laughs> but, but so you did the work, you did this work enough to then you did the work after college, but then at some point you decided to start your own business. Talk to me about that decision and what, what happened in the, the creating of your own business, like what that was and how you did that. It's such a process. So I knew, you know, by the time I graduated from college that I wanted to be this mobile healing, <laughs> mobile healing unit. And I had no idea how. So I just went back to doing the work, working at the mall, working at Microsoft, working at nonprofits, working, doing leadership work with girls and high school students, and just kept developing my, my professional skill set in every way that I could that would help support eventually running a business. Um, and, and learning the skills that I needed to learn in order to eventually do it. But I didn't actually, um, I started Sister Fire in 2000. I didn't actually start sisterfire.com until 2011. And I had taken online courses, B-School with Marie Forleo, all kinds of things, work with coaches to launch my website and um, started doing virtual coaching. So I transitioned, which was a pretty hard turn to go from in-person sanctuary spirituality healing workshops that lasted days hours into trying to translate that into a virtual experience and what i've learned over the years and, and especially with the relaunch of my my site is that i do not have a virtual business i have an in-person healing business i cannot translate years of training, years of in-person energy work, years of sitting at the feet of masters and teachers, learning practices, learning um, modalities into a Skype call. That's just not my gift. It's just not my medicine. And so I took a year and a half to start from scratch and rebuild my, my business brick by brick to figure out how do I offer what I've been given to the world in the most potent, nourishing powerful way possible and that's not through a computer screen it's in face in person face to face heart to heart soul to soul and that's an extremely important point because in this age of technology there is this belief i think that actually affects so many of us where we feel somehow like we're messing up if we can't quite figure out how to make our business as powerful as we want it to online as we as it may be in person that something we must be doing something wrong so to recognize that to to take the space to say okay i need to rebuild from mm -hmm. the bottom brick by brick over the course of a year and a half to give yourself mm -hmm. the permission and the space and the time and the acknowledgement that this is what is the next thing that needs to happen is just I just want to underline that as a as a really valuable thing that you did and also a valuable thing for anyone who's going through that where they feel like their work doesn't transition online in the way that they mm -hmm. think it should or the way that they're told that it could absolutely thank you thank you for that it's it it wasn't a hard decision once I realized what was happening, that I was not attracting my ideal clients, that I was not, and I had to really take, roll back all the layers to figure out why, because it was so consistent. It was a, you know, when people heal, when people hear healer, they often 
depending on where they are in their journey, are looking for someone to wave a magic wand and kind of sprinkle fairy dust and say, you're, re-say these words and you'll be fine. And I was attracting people who didn't want to do the work, who wanted me to do the work for them. And I said, and I knew it wasn't their fault. It wasn't their responsibility that I, I was putting out the wrong message. I was misaligned with the actual work that I do. If that's consistently what I was seeing. So I had to really take a step back and it, and it wasn't, as um, you know, internet businesses can be get this reputation. It's easy. It's fast. It's quick. There's a hack for this. No, <laughs> there's not a hack for everything. I um, went back. I took a temp job. I like really had to fi- to figure out how to bring in some income while I was underground. And I did definitely had some long term clients that I work with who I love. But there was a period when I needed to just focus on the work and I needed to pivot hard. And so I did. So that was there anything in you that felt like, oh, damn, I failed at this or you just felt like, no, this is it. You felt really clear. Oh, yeah. No, I, I tend to be really um, I don't tend to beat myself up. So mm-hmm. I didn't think I I failed at it. I just knew I know that business isn't one and done. So I just had to go back to the drawing board and figure out what really I needed to do to create what I wanted to create in the world. And I'm in it for the long game. And so I may have you know, quote unquote, failed at like running an internet business the way that the internet business gurus teach you how to run an internet business, but I don't have an internet business. So it made sense that I didn't succeed at that. I can't succeed at everything. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) And I also think that that certain things happen. They can't happen until a certain time in our lives. It's like we don't have that information yet because it wouldn't work in our lives at that time. So exactly. Yeah. So sometimes that's just the way it is. Um, now, speaking of how you don't tend to be hard on yourself, you know, you don't think in those terms. I, there's something that you said in an interview I wanted to ask you about that speaks a little mm. bit to this. So someone had asked you the question. It was a fill-in-the-blank question. And she mm. said, finish this sentence. If I were enlightened, I would. And you started to answer the question by describing in what enlightenment means for you. And you defined it as no separation between you and source. Your thoughts, mm-hmm. words, and actions would be the thoughts, words, and actions of God. And then you followed that with, if I were enlightened, my actions would be the same, but my internal dialogue would be different. I would have much more grace for myself. Mm. So I'd like to know how that lack of internal grace can show up and how it shifts so that you find that internal grace for yourself. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't know. <laughs> but I can think of another way that I can answer it right now, because that's more um, about external grace than internal grace. So a few years ago, five years ago, I had brain surgery. Um, was my first surgery ever, my first time ever being hospitalized. So I didn't, I had not spent much time in the medical uh, industrial complex at all. And my body is, is very much impacted by all the things that were happening that led to needing to have brain surgery. And sometimes my mind is very alert, very active, very energized, very ready to go, just needs to go, 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 do, do, do. And my body is, needs sleep and needs to rest and needs to unplug, and needs to go outside and put my feet on the ground. And that creates a distance that is still hard for me to reckon. 
because I'm very comfortable in, in the energy and the momentum of my mind. And I'm very unfamiliar with my body's need for an intensive and an heightened sense of slowness that I don't always like. And so I think for me, the externalized grace would be trusting the process of going with the flow of what my body needs much more immediately and much more graciously and much more gently as opposed to pushing myself to the edges of what my mind thinks I should be able to do. And that, so that shift, that physical shift was a result of the brain surgery? It, it was a result of all the things that resulted <laughs> after the brain okay. surgery. So I, just as a, a little insight, so I had brain surgery because of, I had a, a cerebral spinal fluid filled sac that was impacting my central nervous system on my spine from the base of my skull to the top of my lumbar spine. I was pretty asymptomatic and they, um, it was resolved in the brain surgery. But as a result, my, my central nervous system has now has had this severe impact that I didn't experience until after the surgery. So now I have all of this kind of other things that I have to deal with because my central nervous system is now accessible. Yes. So when you slow down, when you experience that external grace, we were able to go with that flow. Like has something shifted for you in your understanding of the way your life works as you slow, as you go with that slowing mm. down? I learn more and more and more every day to turn to God, to source, to source beyond source, to the sacred, and to live in reference and in reverence to and for that. So when I slow down, I have to just do it in prayer. I have to do it in devotion. I have to, and I think of my work as a devotional practice, but I have to do all of that in devotion because if I get caught up in what I think I should be doing and like the momentum of my own self-propelled momentum that can make me feel very overwhelmed and stressed because I'm like, Oh, I should be able to do, to do this. And I, and I want to circle back to earlier in the conversation when I was 19 and I had those three people die. That's where that seed of, of urgency was planted because I was like, they died. I could die tomorrow. I could die tomorrow. I got to do all these things that I want to do. I got to live. I got to do. I and so when I slow down, not, not all the time. Like if I have plans for slowing down, then it's fine. But when I'm like, when my mind is focused and driven and, and I'm working on a project and my body's like, nope, we're done for the day. I do feel this sense of no, Laren, you could, die. no, I don't feel like you could die tomorrow. That's that has been resolved, but I do feel like this, but the momentum was so good. We were on a roll here and that is hard for me to reckon with sometimes. Yeah, I totally understand it. And it makes sense because you're clearly, you're a woman who has, like you said, a lot of clarity and a lot of drive. And mm -hmm. those together, when you put those two together, then you have a vision for what you want to create and you want to be going in that direction. Yeah. So if something then says, whoa, you got to slow it down, there's that tension there. Of, yes. Okay, how do I resolve this? How, how totally. Do I be, yeah. Mm -hmm. So part of what's been helpful is ha having support. I have no problem asking for help. And so I love being able to have people hire people for my business, hire people for my personal life. Last There was a period of last year um, when I 
um, had really low anemia. I had no iron in my blood and I had no iron in my blood stores. So I could literally be up for an hour and a half and have to sleep the rest of the day because I had, had no iron in my blood. And I had to go get iron infusions, all kinds of stuff was happening. And I hired someone to make meals for me. And she would, I would bring her the groceries, she would make meals and she would bring them. And I had a whole like week and a half, two weeks worth of frozen or fresh, but frozen meals that she would make from scratch for me that helped me support my body in restoring and healing. And so there's all kinds of pieces like that, that I've learned what slowing down can look like slowing down and letting go and asking for help in the meantime. So I wanted to go back for a minute to your building your business back brick by brick. Like, are you now at a place where you feel like, yes, I've built it to where this is, this is right. This feels right. And it's strong. And I've built it back up to what I want to do. Um, well, I've just relaunched. So I feel like the container is built the container that I wanted and dreamed about and prayed for and was told to create has been built. I am in love with my website. My website designer did an amazing job. And it's definitely been a labor of love for these two years of kind of being underground and figuring out who I serve, how I best serve them. So absolutely. And now it's time to fill it because I've shifted back to an in-person business, but I'm location independent. And so although I live in Seattle, I'm not only having workshops in Seattle. My first workshop of 2017 after two year hiatus will be in Seattle. But in 2018, I'm going to Atlanta, New York, Philly, LA, San Francisco, and DC. I'm taking the workshop on the road. So so it's like, um, I've built what I want. And now it's how do I fill it? How do I build a location independent in person business that leverages the internet to bring my right people to me? That's a whole new, that's a whole new question it, that, yeah, oh. I, I, I want to just pause for one minute because you just like, you just built it back up and now mm-hmm. next year you're going to Atlanta, New York, DC, all over, all over the country. Mm-hmm. How is that happening? Because I'm thinking of the person who's listening like, yeah, I want to build my business. How are you going from, I've just been like in this quiet space of building to, or just how are you setting up those workshops? Like what is, just walk me through a little bit of that. Well, even though I've been underground rebranding, I haven't been quiet. And so I've definitely been sending out weekly communications to my email community. I've been on all the social medias. I've been relationship building. I've still been working with people. I've been strategizing. So even though my business has been in a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, It'll come to me in a second. It's been underground. It's been germinating. It's been growing. And so I've still been thinking about how to do this in a way that um, helps work. And so even in the conversations I have with my community, when I went underground, I said, okay, I'm going underground because I know that I'm not a a virtual business and I'm going to be with you face to face, heart to heart, soul to soul in person again. So they are aware that this is the journey that I'm on and they're excited to be with me in person. So I've still been um, having these conversations and, you know, like everything, figuring it out, just a piece by piece experimenting. Now I'm like, okay, now that the website's done, which has been huge to get back up and running, my next um, feat, my next 
uh, project at hand is filling this October workshop. And so that's what I'm focusing on and working with my in-person clients. So I work one-on-one only with people in person as well. And people come to see me. So I have people coming to Seattle to work with me in person. Um, I don't have a a quick answer for it other than I just keep figuring it out as I go, keep asking questions, keep researching, keep learning how to do it all because there is no, you know, internet business models have an internet business models for how to fill internet workshops and in-person marketing flyers. If you're like in one city, and you're not going anywhere. That's the strategies for that. But the way I'm doing it, I don't really have anybody telling me how to do it. I'm just figuring it out. And how do you deal with any fear or doubts that come up along this of like, I'm just figuring this out. I don't, I don't know how it's going to be. I don't actually have a lot of fear that comes up around it because I'll figure, (laughs) I'll just figure it out. And and to me, that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. I'm going to do everything flawlessly the first time. I don't have that expectation of myself. So my expectation is that I'm going to do my very best learn using everything I've learned up to this point. And I'll throw away what doesn't work. I'll keep um, applying and tweaking and figuring it out. But the first part for me was creating a website, a digital because my work is so multisensory. It's so experiential. It's so energetic. It's emotional. It's soulful. It's it's it, it is deep and rich and powerful. And it's not tactile linear experience always so creating a website that could communicate the depth and the layers of my work was tantamount that was so important and so now that I have a sanctuary a digital sanctuary essentially where people can go and get at least a taste of what it's like to be with me in person now I just have to but it's only the foundation so now I just have to keep building and building and building from there but but I had to figure out my brand and my business and my work at the core before I could build the website because the website is the, is the baseline for everything else I want to experience and create for people to want to come be with me in person. Okay. So I want to mention, first of all, <laughs> your, your website, just so people know, Laren Alta, which is L E R I N A L T A.com. Or mm-hmm. if you go to sisterfire.com, it will redirect you to Laren Alta there, there was one thing that you had shared in an interview, and this is a little bit, this is a little bit of a detour from what you were just talking about, but there was something you said that made me think about this. So in this interview, you were asked about why we choose to numb ourselves instead of do the mm. hard work of waking up, which of course is all of your work. And mm. you responded, there's so much currency in being numb. We live in a culture that will never ask us what is going on, how we actually feel. We could Mm -hmm. live from birth to death without anyone actually inquiring how we actually feel, what we think and believe, who we truly are. Mm -hmm. When you said that, it it just struck me like right at the core of this idea that we can go our entire life with nobody, including ourselves, asking Mm -hmm. us who we really are. Well, I mean, even going back to that original question, why do we people stay numb? Because we live in a culture that's built for us to be numb. 
And that when we start waking up, when we start asking ourselves and each other hard questions, we don't really have a cultural context that knows how to hold them. Even in institutions like religious institutions where we're supposed to be diving into these hard questions, supposed to be having deeper relationships with something beyond ourselves, are often so rigid and so close-minded and so um, disconnected that we they, those aren't places that we can engage this depth of ourselves either. So it's easier if we just focus on the superficial. It's easier even in spiritual communities, even in even in these um, you know people who are saying that they're doing spiritual work. If you just focus on the tips and tricks. If you just focus on the tarot cards, and I love tarot cards, so I love tarot cards and oracle cards. I'm not saying anything negative about them, but they aren't the key to your liberation, to your healing. They're a tool. And if you just focus on things that are just tools, but you don't go into the gunk, the discomfort, um, you're only, you're, you will stay numb because you've got to feel, and we don't know how to feel our feelings. Yeah. So the key to liberation is to go in. Yes. And learn how to go in with ju without judgment, with love and acceptance, even for the stuff that we don't like. How do you accept the love with love and acceptance, the stuff about yourself you don't like, because then you can accept it about other people. Yes. Yes, that's right. Okay. So before I ask my final question, is there anything that you want to share that I haven't asked you? I, I want to remind your beautiful community to trust their selves, to breathe and to trust their truth. Even if it's only trusting it with yourself first, because that's where the liberation begins. Even if you're just acknowledging it in a quiet space, just with yourself, it will build, it will grow, it will transform, it will expand and give it room to breathe. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to make it better. Just accepting it will change it. But you have to breathe and accept it first. Thank you. That's great. So the last thing I do is I have one expression of gratitude and then a final short answer question. And so the expression of gratitude that I have for you is for your clarity. You mm. speak with clarity you have it's like in the tenor of your voice and it's in the words that you say and it's from hearing your story it's the way you're moving through the world so I really appreciate the example that you are setting and I appreciate just in this last hour of being able to witness that clarity thank you so much yeah you're welcome and the last question is the creativity habit is about using your creativity, using your art, whatever that is, to create positive change in the world, why do you think it's important that each person make whatever it is that they're here to make? Because you're here to make it. <laughs> because it's what, you know, I think of gifts as not just something that you've been given, but something you're here to give. And you don't need to sit on it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. There is no perfection. There's no right. It's just what you're here to give. And as you give, it will grow, it will transform, and you will grow and transform. And so I think that's the most important piece of it. Give what you're here to give because you're here to give it. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Laren. Thank you. This has been really wonderful. And I love you. You said that you just go straight into the questions. And a lot of people say that and they really don't. But you really do. And I really appreciate that. I love that you don't pull any punches. It's not fluffy. You get to the heart of the question. And I, it feels good. It feels like really good conversation. And I really, really appreciate that. I value it a lot. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's my favorite kind of conversation to have. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) This has been wonderful. Thank you. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. To read about the daily routines and practices of artists and makers, go to thecreativityhabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to iTunes Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And then join me next week for another Creativity Habit podcast. Thank you for listening.